So let's start our Dhamma talk with the Namatasa. Namatasa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Sambodasa Namatasa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Sambodasa Namo Tassa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Sambodasa Tonight I'm going to talk about Samvega, the sense of urgency, or spiritual urgency. In my last talk, when I was talking about the kilesas, the defilements, and the three trainings, I raised the question, why should we practice vipassana meditation? And we have come to see that it is only with the practice of vipassana meditation that we can completely abandon the defilements, and more specifically, the latent defilements, the anusaya kilesas. <clears throat> and this abandoning happens through the training in wisdom, which is accompanied by the training in morality and the training in concentration. The complete abandoning of these latent defilements happens at the moment of path knowledge. And to pave the ground for this path knowledge to arise, we have to practice vipassana meditation. There is no other way to do it. So there is no choice. (coughs) So therefore, vipassana meditation is something that needs to be done. Or it's something that cannot be left undone if we aspire to uh, lasting happiness and peace. So this understanding provides the motivation to engage in Vipassana meditation. Because we see the absolute necessity to practice meditation, we actually find the time and space to do so. In some people, this understanding is not very clear or they even lack this deep understanding. They might have different motivations and reasons why they started to practice meditation. And so for these people, it can happen that they, at one stage, that they do no longer see the point why they should continue with their uh, meditation. They start having doubts why they should further undergo so much hardships or uh, face so many challenges. Some other people simply become too complacent about their lives and do not see the need 
uh, to continue with their vipassana meditation practice. So if the proper motivation is lacking or if the practice becomes stagnant, it can be helpful to reflect on certain facts of life. These reflections can help bring back the proper motivation and ignite a sense of urgency. When we are confronted with our own vulnerability and mortality, then we naturally look for something that has the power to skillfully address these topics. So then we feel clearly um, an urgency to do something about it, to do something meaningful about it, as long as we are still healthy and mentally sound. So this feeling of a sense of urgency can either naturally arise or it can be aroused with a number of uh, reflections. Urgency or spiritual urgency are the most common translations for the Pali word Samvega. I'm sure that many of you have uh, heard this word. The literal translation of this Pali word Samvega is actually emotion or agitation. Sayadaw Uindaka, one of my teachers in Burma, he uses the term Samvega Jnana. And this means the insight or the understanding that things are frightening and terrifying. Based on this understanding that things are frightening and terrifying, the mind becomes agitated or reacts with certain emotions. And this then causes a sense of urgency to arise. So when I use the word urgency for some vega in this talk, it should be understood in this uh, sense, the sense of urgency that comes about through the understanding, uh, through understanding the frightening and terrifying aspects uh, of life. Tamane Cho, another Burmese uh, Zayado, he uses the expression wholesome fear for Samvega. So, Samvega, this is not um, disgust or uh, revulsion towards the facts of aging or death, but it's a wholesome mental state, a wholesome fear that sees the dangers or drawbacks in birth, aging, sickness or death. 
And so on account of this wholesome mental state, this wholesome fear, then one starts to engage in actions that aim to overcome these dangerous or frightening states. <clears throat> the texts list eight reflections that provide the sources of a sense of urgency. When one of these eight sources of some vega is perceived through either hearing or thinking or seeing or analyzing, then the mind uh, becomes somehow agitated, starts to become scared or frightened. So, these are these eight sources of Samvega. The first is the suffering caused by rebirth. The second one is the suffering caused by aging. The third one is the suffering caused by sickness. The fourth one is the suffering caused by death. The fifth one is the suffering of the lower realms. And the sixth one is the suffering experienced in this present life rooted in the search for food. Number seven is the suffering experienced in the past rooted in the cycle of rebirth. And the last one is the suffering to be experienced in the future, rooted in the cycle of rebirth. So when one is perceiving one of these eight sources, the mind becomes agitated, mind is shaken, mind can become frightened and terrified. And so this understanding that things are frightening or terrifying. This is called Samvega Jnana. So let's go, uh, let's go through these eight sources uh, of Samvega. The first one, the suffering caused by rebirth. So each birth into a new existence gives rise to all the other forms of suffering and distress. In some forms of existence, these suffering um, are more pronounced. In other forms of existence, these kinds of suffering or misery are more subtle and not so obvious. So for example, the hell realms or the animal realms, their physical suffering is quite pronounced and pervasive. Whereas in the deva realms, there is not much uh, physical suffering, uh, not even mental suffering. It's usually this de- depicted like a paradise. Devas uh, are born spontaneously 
they are not born from a womb. And once they are born, they stay uh, good-looking and young for almost all of their lives. Only when death is approaching after hundreds or thousands of years uh, do the signs of the approaching death appear, such as sweat coming out under the armpits or the flowers that they are adorned with start to wither. And so then, when these signs appear, then the devas start uh, to worry. Then they get a bit of mental distress. But for the rest of their lives, they can enjoy good food, nice entertainment, music, dance, always having nice company of other uh, devas and so on. So no, no matter in which plane of, a, of existence one is born, death will finally put an end to that existence. So death is inevitable. It's for sure. Then the second source, the suffering caused by aging. And Aging starts immediately with birth. So it's not only when we are 50 or 60 that we start to age or that we become older, but actually from the moment of birth uh, we start to age, we become older. And so through the relentless aging process, over many years, over many decades, and also through over-exerting this body or uh, mistreating the body, doing too much sports, too much jogging or smoking or reading with uh, bad light, stress. So then through that the body starts to fall apart getting weaker, organs do not function properly anymore, uh, and so on. And this then can lead to the third source, the suffering caused by sickness. This is quite obvious, there's not much explanation needed for this. When we get sick, it's unpleasant, it's painful, it's suffering. When the body gets sick, this is one thing. And as Joseph explained in his last talk, like this is a person being hit by a dart. It's painful. But very often bodily painful sensations caused through a sickness they also lead to suffering and pain in the mind. But, and this is like being hit by a second dart. And the second uh, suffering is optional. The mind doesn't need to suffer when the body is sick. Then the fourth source is the suffering caused by death. 
And this is both one's own death and the death of beloved ones. There might be fear and anxiety about one's own death. And to counter or to overcome this fear regarding one's own death, in the Buddhist tradition there is the reflection on death, Maranasati. So with that uh, particular reflection, one tries to really get the understanding that death is inevitable, that this is the only certain thing in one's life, that one is going to die one day. And so, repeatedly engaging in that reflection, then one hopefully is able to squarely face the fact that one has to die. And so, one can prepare the mind uh, not to be agitated or confused when death is approaching. One time I was visiting a friend of mine who is living in a meditation center in Thailand. It's uh, near Kanchanaburi towards the Sri Pagoda Pass. And it's a huge area and there is also a mountain. When I was there they were just building uh, a temple with a pagoda on the top of that mountain. And then my friend took me a bit further for a walk and uh, there were a few little huts like kutis where people could go and practice meditation all by themselves in the forest, in the jungle. And in each of these kutis there was a coffin and people were encouraged to lie into the coffin and then see what would come up in their minds. Unfortunately, I didn't have the time uh, to do that, although my friend and her teacher had offered it to me. (laughs) Then the fifth source of Samvega is the suffering of the lower realms. The lower realms are also called Apaya. And this party word actually means that which is devoid of happiness. Because in these lower realms, pain and misery greatly exceed happiness and joy. The lower realms include the so-called petas, or hungry ghosts. And they are always tormented by very intense hunger and thirst. They never can find release from their hunger, thirst or other afflictions. Usually these petas or hungry ghosts are depicted with huge bellies and very tiny uh, necks and mouths. So even if they want to swallow a drop of water, 
um, by the time it's the, 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 the throat is so narrow that this drop of water hardly uh, goes down the throat. Then the animals belong to the lower realms and their suffering is caused through their uh, great delusion. Animals are usually run by their instincts. They go for food, they sleep, and for the propagation of their species. Then the hell beings, there they undergo incredible physical suffering. They live uh, in great anguish all the time. They are uh, all the time tormented. And another of the lower realms are the so-called Asuras. That's translated as demonic kittens. And they are also tormented spirits, similar to the petas or hungry ghosts. Then the sixth source of Samvega is the suffering experienced in this present life rooted in the search for food. Or, to make it a bit broader, uh, is suffering caused by the constant struggle to get food and to get a place to live, to get clothes and all the necessities in life. So for most people on this earth, to make a livelihood, uh, to get enough food and so on, is not completely free of worries. It's not free of stress or anxieties or fear. In wealthy, affluent societies, this is not so obvious. But in third, third world countries, there it is very obvious where people have to struggle to get even uh, enough food for just that very day. Like the recent uh, development in Burma last year with the raising of fuel prices, also uh, everyday commodities uh, became very, very expensive. And so for the average Burmese people, it became very difficult just to get enough for the day, to get enough to buy uh, enough food uh, for a day. I wasn't there during that time. I only went back to Burma at the end of December. And by that time, things, at least on the surface, seemed to be back to normal. Life was going on as usual. People were busy getting uh, about their lives, their business. But what I noticed was the fact that not only in our meditation center, 
but in other meditation centers and monasteries, nunneries as well, there was less dana, like less donations, because people uh, just needed it for themselves. So uh, they could not spare, or they had had no uh, spare money any longer to uh, greatly engage in uh, dana. And also the number of meditators, Burmese meditators, um, was less than the previous years because, you know, every member in the family was needed to go for work to get enough uh, for their family, to get enough food. So there was not so much opportunity for them to go off and practice meditation. And what is called this suffering um, for the search of food, I mean, not even nuns and monks are exempted from this. The usual way to get the food for monks and nuns is to go on arms round. And so to go on arms round, it needs, takes time and also energy. And like for example in Burma, the monks, they go out every day for arms round, in every weather. In the hot season, when it's boiling hot, they have to go out. In the rainy season, when it's pouring down with rain, they have to go out. So it's not only a pleasant thing to do, Last year, when I was in Europe, I went on Tudong with two German nuns. And Tudong is a thing that usually monks do in Thailand. Like monks, they don't stay in one place, in a monastery, but they just wander from one place to another. From, and then to get their daily food, they uh, go to the next village to get some food. And for the night, uh, they usually spend it outside, somewhere the forest in the jungle, and they carry a big umbrella with them, and over the umbrella they can put a mosquito net, and so putting it up, uh, fixing it on a branch of a tree, then they can meditate and uh, sleep out there. So with these two German nuns, we did the same thing for one week. We took our sleeping bags, a little mat, and a plastic sheet, and to make a little kind of shelter out in the forest. And to get our food, we took our arms both and entered a village or a small town. And we did that in Bavaria southern part of Germany, which is a hilly area. Mostly people are mostly farming, so there are farming houses dotted on the hills, little villages or towns. And so then in the morning when we went for arms round, 
of course in Germany and especially in that rural area people are not used to Buddhist nuns going on arms round <laughs> and so walking through the streets it was not like in Burma for example where people come out running off their house and wanting to offer some rice or curries so walking through the streets did not uh, fill our stomachs <laughs> So we, we expected that to be so. But then what we did was um, to stand still uh, in a certain place and usually in front of a grocery store where people would go and shop for groceries. And, you know, people would go in, come out, and then once in a while a person would come up to us, we just standing there with our arms full holding in front of us, not saying anything, but quietly standing there. And so people would come up to us, some of them uh, reaching into their pocket, taking out some coins and wanting to give us money. And then we could say, no, we don't take money. And so the question was, huh, then what are you doing here? What do you collect? And so being asked, then we answered the question and explained that we were nuns and that um, people could offer us food so that we could eat. And very often, or people just would come out and walk towards us and look at us and, well, what are you doing here? What? <laughs> Who are you? And so then explaining who we were, what we were doing. Um, people then, they would go back into the grocery shop and get us some bread rolls, some cheese, some fruit, some tomatoes, uh, whatever, come out and hand it over to us. So, you know, it took some time or we had to stand in front of two or three different grocery stores uh, in the morning. But it was very heartening because every day we got enough food for the day. Our stomachs were really full. So that was a very uh, heartening thing to do, especially in an area where people are mostly Catholic, like Bavaria is very Catholic. But maybe it was exactly because people were so deeply rooted in their religion that they had this sense of supporting nuns, renunciates. You know, when they asked, when he told we are nuns, then they would ask, well, in which tradition? And so we said, Buddhist nuns. But by that time, it didn't matter anymore whether we were Catholic nuns or Buddhist nuns or whatever kinds of nuns, the fact that we were living a celibate life, doing what we were doing, was enough for them to open their hearts and fill our arms bowls. So then, uh, to the seventh uh, source of Samvega, this is the suffering experienced in the past, rooted in the cycle of rebirth. So 
So from our present life, we can infer to our past existences and see that they must have been beset with suffering as well. Not everybody knows his or her past life, but some people, they can know what or where they have uh, lived in the past lives. This can be achieved through the abhinyas, the supernormal powers, or some people, they have just spontaneous uh, recollections. So, if one is able to recollect one's past lives, one could uh, gratify one's curiosity to know uh, what kind of existences one had. But maybe it could also be quite shocking or even frightening to know uh, what one uh, had been in one's past life or what, one, what kind of actions one did in that existence. And the last source of Samvega is the suffering to be experienced in the future, rooted in the cycle of rebirth. So from our present life, we also can infer that in our future existences, uh, we will be afflicted by various kinds of suffering, that we will not be exempted from suffering or misery. So here is an example of how this uh, feeling of urgency can arise. It's an example from the time of the Buddha. The Venerable Sariputta, one of the main disciples of the Buddha, had a younger brother whose name was Rivata. After Venerable Sariputta had become an Arahant, fully enlightened, all except one of his brothers and sisters also ordained as monks and nuns and uh, became uh, fully enlightened. So then finally only the mother with her youngest son, Rivata, were left at home. Venerable Sariputta's mother um, belonged to the Brahmins and uh, so she believed in Brahma as the creator of the universe. And Venerable Sariputta's mother was not happy that her son had gone off to this recluse Gotama and was living um, the holy life there. See, she greatly resented that. And the fact that then Venerable Sariputta's other brothers and sisters had followed him and also ordained under the Buddha even increased her dissatisfaction and resentment. So now finally, 
only her youngest son, Rivata, was left with her. And she greatly feared that Venerable Sariputta, or his other brothers and sisters, would come and take away Rivata from her. And so, if they would take Rivata and uh, ordain him under the Buddha, then she would have no children left. She would have nobody to give her inheritance. And so with that, she decided that it would be best to marry uh, Rivata. But at the time, her son Rivata was only seven years old. But she arranged a marriage with another Brahmin girl who was also only seven years old. And so, having that marriage arranged, the preparations of the wedding ceremony started. And for that, Rivata, together with his relatives, went to the village of his bride. When they arrived there, Rivata and his relatives went to the bride's relatives to pay uh, respect to them. This um, was the tradition uh, to do so. And so among the relatives of his bride, there was the grandmother who was already 120 years old. Due to her advanced age, her eyesight was very poor, the hearing was not good, her skin had many wrinkles, her hair on her head was all white and uh, quite messy, and she had only one tooth left. And her whole body was covered with many moles. And so Rivata then was told, this is your bride's grandmother, Pay respect to her. She's already 120 years old. And so then both Rivata and his bride paid respect to the grandmother. And as it was tradition, then the grandmother bestowed her blessings on the two of them, saying, May you have a long life. May you get even older than myself. May you be healthy, may you be strong, and so on. And after having paid respect to the grandmother, Rivata asked his relatives, With the years, will my bride also get older? Will she also age? And all the relatives said, Well, of course, with the years, one will get older. One is definitely aging. And when Rivata heard that, he became very scared. He was quite terrified and frightened. And so with a shaking voice he said, This means that my beautiful and sweet bride will also get older and age? So then the wedding took place. And after the wedding, Rivata 
his wife and all the relatives returned to Rivata's native place. Riding the horse carts, then all of a sudden Rivata said, Oh, 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 I feel, I feel strong uh, pain in my stomach. I have to go and relieve myself. And so with that, he went down from the horse cart and um, did as if he went into the bushes to relieve himself. After that, he caught up with the others and only after a little while, he again announced that he had his stomach cramps and that he needed to get down from the horse cart to go into the bushes. And so he did as if he went into the bushes to relieve himself. And again, he caught up with them. And this happened a third time when he said all of a sudden, oh, 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 my uh, stomach is so painful. I need to uh, get down. And so the relatives wanted to stop the horse cart. But he said, no, 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 you go on. I will catch up with you. And again, he went into the bushes. And this time, he didn't come back, but he ran uh, into the forest. Uh, He uh, escaped. And so, after a while of running through the forest, he came to a monastery. And there, he went to the abbot and said, please, uh, give me ordination. Please ordain me. And the the abbot asked him, well, where do you come from? Who are you? And so Rivata said, well, I'm the younger brother the youngest brother of Venerable Sariputta. My name is Rivata. And the abbot then asked him, Why do you want to take up the robes? And so Rivata then said, Because I'm afraid of the dangers of aging, sickness and death. I want to become free from these dangers. I want to uh, attain Nibbana. And having these answers then, the abbot ordained little Rivata, ordained him as a novice. And after Rivata had been ordained as a novice, he started to practice meditation. And apparently it didn't take him long uh, until he became fully liberated until he became an Arahant. So in Revata's case, it was the sight of an old and frail person, the grandmother, that scared him greatly. He became scared of aging, old age. So because some Veganyana had arisen in him, he ran away, ordained as a novice, practiced meditation and became fully enlightened, and this uh, still as a novice. A common characteristic 
that underlies all of these eight sources of Samvega is the nature of impermanence, the fleeting and changing nature of everything that is conditioned. Because life is impermanent, we are born and then we die. Because of the impermanent and changing nature of phenomena, we do not eternally stay young, but we age. Because of the impermanent and changing nature of phenomena, a healthy body gets sick, becomes afflicted with suffering or painful sensations. Because of the constant arising and passing away of phenomena, which is uh, fueled by craving and ignorance, then the mental continuum continues uh, after death and takes a new form, takes a new body. Because of the impermanent and changing nature of the body, one has to constantly feed it. One has to constantly take care of it. There are a number of analogies to illustrate this impermanent and uh, changing nature of phenomena. And these similes highlight the fact that these changes are happening very quickly, very swiftly. The simile of the water drops. So let's say it's raining and raindrops fall uh, on the surface of, of a lake. And the moment a raindrop hits the surface of the water, it dissolves and disappears. Or like a flash, like a flash of lightning in the sky. The lightning is very, very short. After it has appeared, it immediately disappears. Or the simile of the drops of dew. A drop of dew on the edge of a blade of grass vanishes very quickly once the sun has risen. Or drawing a line on the surface of water. If one takes a stick and draws a line on the surface of the water, this line instantly disappears. It won't last even a few moments. And the last simile is quite a funny one. I like this one. Um, it's particularly uh, relevant to Asian uh, cultures. It's not so much uh, relevant to our Western culture because that's the simile of spitting out a lump of spittle. In India or Burma, spitting is quite a common thing to do. And so it said person forms a lump of spittle on the tip of the tongue and then immediately spits it out. So 
So these similes not only apply to the fleeting and changing nature of our life, of our body, but they also apply to the various processes happening in our body and mind. Once we start to have a closer look at these processes happening in the body and mind, then we come to see that they too are in a state of constant flux, that they are very fleeting, changing all the time. Whatever we perceive at the six sense doors is but an instantaneous manifestation of knowing and perceiving. So for example, the eye door, like looking at the Buddha statue before and after the bowing. So looking at the Buddha statue before bowing down is an act of seeing that happens in that very moment. Once we start the bowing movement and uh, closing our eyes or uh, gazing down, then that seeing process, looking at the Buddha statue, is no longer uh, happening. Then it's gone. Then that seeing process has completely disappeared. When we have finished the bowing down and when we may look again at the Buddha statue, then that seeing process, looking at the Buddha, is altogether a new seeing process. There is nothing that has been transferred from the previous seeing process to this uh, following seeing process. The first uh, seeing process, looking at the Buddha, has arisen and then disappeared, then and there. And then the new seeing process has arisen because there were causes and conditions uh, there. Or a process at the ear door. For example, hearing a sound that could be a loud and shrill cry of a white kakadu. I must say, uh, the sound that these kakadus make is very um, peculiar, very amazing. <laughs> I've never heard any birds doing something like this anywhere else. So here in the center, it can easily happen that the silence is all of a sudden broken by a very loud and shrill cry of a kakadu. And so, because of that sound, then hearing arises. And you as meditators, uh, then your mind fully aware <coughs> of that hearing process. And when the kakatu has finished its message, then the sound stops. And with that, that hearing process comes to an end as well. And so we come to see that hearing process um, 
arises and then disappears when the object uh, is no longer there. So it's just a very momentary and fleeting manifestation of hearing. And when the hearing uh, disappears, then the hearing process has completely vanished. It's gone, once and forever. That hearing moment, that hearing process, will never ever come back again. The nose door, so smelling, and this could be uh, entering the dining hall and uh, get the smell of a katta sprinkled with some cheese. So this smell hits your nose and so then a smelling process arises. Later on, when you sit down at the table, then maybe the other person sitting at the table has um, applied some tiger balm or any other strong smelling ointment. And so then with that, uh, you smell the tiger balm. And that means that a new smelling process has arisen. So the smelling of the kata has disappeared. That's no longer existing. But instead of that, that process, a new smelling process, smelling that tiger balm, has arisen. So, with enough mindfulness, meditators can see that the smelling process uh, of smelling the kata is one thing and that this does not go into the smelling of the tiger balm. They are two separate and distinct processes, both of them arising and disappearing. The tongue door or tasting for example, when eating some muesli at breakfast. Let's say you take a spoonful of muesli and as you start chewing, you can taste the taste of a raisin that uh, is between your teeth and that you are chewing. And when that bit of muesli has been chewed, then the tongue uh, moves some more of the muesli that is in your mouth, in your mouth, uh, between your teeth, and as you start chewing that bit, then you maybe chew some dried papaya, and with that you start to taste uh, dried papaya. So tasting the raisin was um, one tasting process and tasting the papaya is a new process of tasting. So that process of tasting the raisin was a distinct and separate uh, tasting process 
which had arisen and then disappeared. And when the papaya was tasted, that was a completely new tasting process, newly arisen and then disappearing again on its own accord. Then the body door touching, for example, an experience of pain. A friend of mine, she was experiencing a lot of pain during one particular retreat. She was in Burma and she practiced with Sayadaw Upandita. It was a very difficult retreat because there were so many uh, painful sensations in her body. And so at the end of the retreat, uh, she asked Sayadaw Upandita, uh, you know, when I come next year, will I experience again the same pain? And Saido Upandita's uh, answer was very clear. He said, no. And so with that, she felt greatly relieved. And the following year, uh, when she again went to Burma and practiced, again she experienced a lot of physical pain, the same pain as the um, uh, past in the past year. And of course, she was a bit disappointed and thought, "Oh, Saida Upandita uh, didn't tell me the truth." And so. One day in her interview, she mentioned it to Saido and said, you know, last year when I asked you about this pain, if I would experience it again the following year when I would come, you said no, but now I'm again in this great agony experiencing the same pain as last year. And Saido Upandita very compassionately said, no, no. The pain that you're experiencing now is a completely new pain. <laughs> it's not the pain from last year. <laughs> so a certain pain that you experience in the sitting meditation over a number of days is actually never the same pain. The pain experience in the previous sitting meditation is not the same pain as you experience in the following sitting meditation. The previous pain has disappeared in that sitting meditation or at the moment uh, you got up or changed your uh, posture. It has completely disappeared and it's gone. It's not floating around somewhere, waiting to come up again. So it has disappeared, it has completely died, and the pain that arises in the next sitting meditation is a new pain, a pain that is born then and there. And lastly, the mind door, uh, a thought, Let's take the example of a recurring memory. So we are 
all familiar with recurring thoughts that come up. That's like a tape which is played again and again and again and again. And so without paying attention to this thought process, then we mistake these recurring thoughts for one and the same thought. So we think that the same thought processes is coming time and again. However, these recurring thoughts are not the same thoughts coming up uh, repeatedly. Each of these recurring thoughts is a completely new thought that arises at that very moment. Although it has the same object as a previous thought, but it's a new, uh, separate uh, thought. And this thought, this recurring thought, is born and then it passes away. It dies. And once it's passed away, it has vanished, then it's gone. And it's completely gone forever. That thought, moment or process will never recur again. So to see these different processes in this way, we need to carefully observe them. So next time when you get uh, the same recurring thought, watch out for the mind taking it for the same thought process that as the previous ones. Then look at this recurring thought very carefully and you might ask yourself, is this really the same thought process? How can this be when the previous recurring thought process was happening in the morning? Where did that thought process go? Where did it hide? Or how can it be the same thought process when they are happening at different times? And you can apply the same questions in regard to the same pain that comes up repeatedly in uh, your sitting meditation. And likewise, you can do that with uh, any other object arising at the other uh, sense doors. Ordinary people who do not practice vipassana meditation take these different processes as one and the same. They assume that the tasting of the raisin and the dried papaya is one and the same process. And likewise with the other processes at the different sense doors. And this mistaken view conceals the nature of impermanence and it hides the fleeting and changing nature of phenomena. 
as a result of this mistaken view, the notion of permanence and stability is reinforced by taking things to be permanent and stable, people do not see their unsatisfactory nature. As long as phenomena are not seen as inadequate or as unable to provide lasting satisfaction, people don't want to go away uh, from these uh, things. Therefore, no sense of urgency arises in them. On the other hand, meditators who practice vipassana meditation will come to see this fleeting and changing nature of the processes happening in the body and mind. At the outset of meditation practice, this understanding will not yet be very clear or obvious. But with the repeated observation of these mental and bodily processes constantly arising and disappearing, it will become more obvious and clearer. But still, the pain from the previous sitting meditation might be taken for the same pain in the next sitting meditation. But when mindfulness becomes really sharp and keen and when concentration is deep enough, then it becomes so strikingly clear that the arising of a painful sensation is a completely new process, a process that had never arisen before. It not only had never arisen before, but it will also never again arise in the future. These processes happening at the six sense doors are happening but momentarily. They arise and disappear, they are born and then they die. And so is that then meditators uh, come to see that birth and death, for example, are not only happenings distinct as distinct events in one's life, as birth and death, but that actually each moment of seeing or hearing or uh, feeling pain, that each moment is actually subject to birth and death, to arising and passing away. And one also comes to see that in each moment of hearing or seeing or thinking, aging is taking place. When the seeing process disappears, for example, it has aged. It's not as young as it was when it appeared. So with the understanding of impermanence on this microscopic level, then the danger lying in this impermanent phenomena becomes more obvious. It really strikes the mind that this 
fleeting, that is fleeting and constantly changing uh, objects are frightening and not the source of security. And as a result, a sense of urgency arises, a sense of urgency to get away from this uh, frightening phenomena. finish this talk, I will give a short summary of, the, of one of the Chattakas, the Udeyabhada Chattaka. In that Chattaka, the Bodhisattva was uh, the husband of Princess Udeyabhada. And when he passed away from that existence, he was reborn as King Saka, the ruler of the Tavatimsa Deva realm. And to arouse a sense of urgency in his former wife, King Saka disguised himself as an ordinary man and entered um, Princess Udayapada's room in the evening. So the Bodhisattva, disguised as this ordinary man, he told Princess Udayabhada, you are incredibly beautiful and attractive. I want to spend one night with you. And if you allow me to spend this night with you, I will give you this beautiful bowl filled with gold coins. But... Princess Udayabhada declined the offer and told the man to immediately leave her room. On the second night, the man came again, and this time he offered her a bowl filled with silver coins, if he could spend the night with her. Again, Princess Udayabhada dismissed him, saying he should leave. On the third night, this man showed up again. And this time he offered her a bowl filled with bronze coins. Although Princess Udayabhada did not accept his offering, she was curious to know why his offerings, his uh, gifts, were of less value with each day. Because usually, if a man wants to conquer the heart of a woman, uh, his presence would be of more value with each day. And so therefore, she asked him for uh, the reason of this and this unusual behavior. And so the Bodhisattva, this man replied, You know, I'm like a skilled broker. If you are getting more and more beautiful with each day, and if you were getting younger and younger day after day, then I would give you a bigger and more valuable uh, present each day. However, your beauty is decreasing day by day, and you are getting older day after day. This 
is why my gifts for you are of less value with each day. And the Bodhisattva, this man, uh, continued to say, even now while I'm speaking to you, your beauty is decreasing and your age is increasing. The beautiful body that I saw on the first night is no longer existing today. The beauty of that day is gone. And your age, too, is not the same as it was uh, on the first night. You were, now you are not as young as you were a couple of days ago. The processes in the body with its beauty that I saw on the first night had then and then disappeared. Likewise, the body with its beauty that I saw earlier this evening when I arrived here, that has already disappeared. It's no longer existing. There are no mental and physical uh, processes whatsoever that are permanent or unchanging, my dear. As the Paramis, the perfections of Princess Udeyabada were highly developed, she understood what this man uh, wanted to tell her. And so a sense of urgency arose in her. And as a result, she renounced the luxurious life in the palace, gave everything away, and she became a hermit. She lived alone in a garden near the palace where she engaged in meditation. And when she passed away from that existence, she was also reborn in the Tavatimsa Deva realm in the company of King Saka, who had been uh, her husband in her and his former life. So, it's a long talk today. (laughs) So, if your motivation is low or lacking, reflect on one of these sources of Samvega in order to arouse a sense of urgency. So, may all of you be able to practice Vipassana meditation before you're getting old, before you get sick, before you die. May all of you be able to become free from the cycle of rebirth and become fully liberated. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.